really is like about telling truth, right? And if certain kind of patterns and archetypes in society are just kind of imp- completely impossible to talk about or even mention, then it, it's not going to be, it might be like approved comedy, but it's just not going to be very interesting. It's not going to be, it's not going to like target our, like the sense of relief you get for comedy when someone tells a joke, which you're kind of all thinking. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike and joining me once again is Jonathan Astro. John, we have a return guest. Mr. Ed West is in the house. Uh, I'm pretty excited because we're going to talk about uh, another sitcom. Blackadder. Yeah, well, we, we talked, we covered a few different things, but, uh, you know, poli- UK politics, uh, work James Bond and um, the sitcom uh, Blackadder. Uh, I think people should listen because, you know, we do need to get back to talking about, well, enjoying comedy, I think, is what we should be doing. Yeah. And uh, But I think before we can start enjoying, we need to figure out what's gone wrong, why we're not allowed to joke anymore why we're not allowed to, you know, have great, have good things anymore. And so maybe after that, we can start making Blackadder again. Yeah. Blackadder 5. Well, they shouldn't do it. It'd be dreadful. But uh, It would, yeah. yeah we're just going to have yeah. to learn. What, what, what era would they set it in? Would it be like sw- the sw- swinging 60s? Yeah, maybe, I guess. But the, see, it's funny. The funniest stuff is happening now, really. Like all this woke stuff is hilarious, but no one's got the, yeah. gu- the guts to cover any of it should be black adder set in like a, a transgender clinic or something <laughs> yeah that'd be a laugh a riot uh <laughs> it's me all right well let's uh let's get into this thing well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we need your help. We need you to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment there. Word of mouth is also a very powerful tool, so please tell all of your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me A Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated. And now, here's Ed West. Return guest Ed West is former deputy editor of Unheard, a journalist, essayist, author, and substacker. He began his career in men's magazines and then transitioned into less racy journalism. He's written for the Daily Telegraph and The Spectator and has authored books on a diverse array of topics, from the art of seduction to British history. His most recent book, which we covered in our last uh, podcast with him, Tory Boy, Memoirs of the Last Conservative, is hilarious and you should get it. We also want you to sign up to his substack called The Wrong Side of History. Uh, it's, it is uh, unique uh, and, and fantastic. Ed, welcome back to The New Flesh. It's a pleasure. It's a lovely sunny day in, in England. So not often you can say that. Hope you guys are well. Yes, we are very well. Now, you know, we jump around a bit today. We've got a few things to cover. Transition, by the way, very um transition, very, very interesting use term there to uh, to describe my career. But yeah, thank you, yes. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, goodness me. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about uh, was, you know, because I, I got this from some of your your writing recently. How's your French coming along? I, I, I hear you, you've got a bit of a psychodrama going on with with learning of French. Yeah, big mental block. I, I've just come back from France. Actually, we were in um, this. I love. I mean, I love the country. Even though we had a couple of a couple of customer service experiences, they just don't do customer service. It's just like it's their way or or sod off. And um, so we were in the very southwest for a bit, near the Spanish border. In fact, we went to Spain for the day. Uh, and there we, we uh, went to this lovely local restaurant. <laughs> but my daughters are vegetarians and trying to order vegetarian food in, I mean, a lot of the Latin world, it's just treated like a mental illness. And they just couldn't understand. <laughs> so the beef I got, I got this lovely steak. It's amazing. But 
they brought back these poached eggs for my kids and it was like an hour and then they had sausage in them and he said like they're vegetarians and like our friends one of our friends was a very good french speaker so they understood fluently and then eventually two hours later the food probably it hadn't all probably arrived they they didn't even say oh well you know if you're in, like with americans especially it's like if there's any problem with the order they'll like take off half the bill or if they might even get you the whole rest meal free they're so you know it's all about yes customs. yeah they just said no said no absolutely not said you're paying for the whole thing and it ended with um the, the chef pick up a phone and threatening to call the police if we didn't pay the full amount right it's like <laughs> it, it's like that is the french all over isn't it um and we had a couple but of others but generally for being a, yeah i mean the the idea i mean obviously prisons are very rude everyone knows that um but you still get a bit i mean i think in country areas they're just they're just set in their own ways which i kind of love i mean i kind of admire the love the country um and we're probably going back there in half term actually uh because uh it's yeah hopefully so, yeah so i have um but i had this mental block because when i was it's just about the pronouncing as an english speaker you know just pronouncing the french words very nasal and you have to pull lots of like funny faces to speak french and make kind of unnatural shapes in your mouth and it just you, feels you really do, do you really go for it like you don't get you can't do it it's worse when you when you don't you because when you do an act you've really right. got to be french french west you can't just do parlez-vous francais you can't just do that uh, no you can't do it it's not like teddy you've got to really become the become the frenchman you really have to absorb the character um i'm getting a bit better here generally because i, I learning languages is quite hard i'm generally quite shy um so a lot of the language is just shyness and like you're going to be laughed at all the time for a while before you get to a certain efficiency. But as I get old, you know, generally as you get older, you just like really don't really care what people think about you anymore. Um, That's true. So it's like, less yeah. embarrassing. But yeah, it's um, there's a kind of um, generation that gets harder because France is like one of the last countries in Western Europe where you will still find that meet a lot of people who can't speak English. Wow. Like Germany is just impossible. Everyone speaks English. Um, and obviously the Netherlands, they've been speaking English. I mean, obviously, if you know, in, in, in Holland, it's even embarrassing just to say, like, is it Spritzy English? Because it's like, it's a bit insulting, isn't it? It's like, are you an idiot? You can't speak English. <laughs> well, they well say, the Dutch are so good. The Dutch are so good at English that they, they can do puns and stuff. Yeah, exactly. They can, like, do wordplay and, and sort of stuff. Yeah. And the Scandinavians are similar to that. So, but in France, there were lots of rural areas. We stayed on a way near Lyon with this uh, kind of older middle-aged couple and they didn't speak and the woman just chatting away with us um and i was kind of i mean i got most of what she's saying but um i, I need to sp spend some time there so if i can get the Substack subscriptions up to like good good levels then i can go and like live in a castle in france and become a well, frenchman we want to help make your your uh dreams come true so everyone sign up uh right now and and put uh ed in france where he belongs how, how do you kids how do you kids feel about that moving to moving to france are they, were they traumatized by the uh, vegetarian thing? Uh, I mean, I kind of prepared them for it. I, I kind of give them a lot of, you know, I, I tell them about, you know, foreigners, you know, you've got to be watching, you've got to be aware of these people. Um, so I think, I, I don't think they mind really. It's, it's just like a beautiful evening, like it, just, a, you know, amazing views. And it was all just, uh, it was all nice generally. So they laughed it off, gave them ice cream instead. But what is the what is the antagonism with the French and the English though? Because because and there's something so um, archety archetypal about you know because you you know you're you're a, a, a an English public intellectual and there's a big tradition of of sort of English uh, public intellectuals being enamoured by France and being you know hating it and loving it all at the same time. 
it's um i don't know I, I, a lot of people said that in france hostilities got even worse since brexit but i i don't know how to like a lot of people have said they've experienced more rudeness but i'm not entirely sure but i just think it's always been like that um especially amongst uh like non-elites in both countries always been quite hostile to the other one um so apparently when the first the war broke out in like Brittany, there were like cheers and public celebrations and everyone thought that we were the French, they were fighting the English. It's like, hey. And then they said, oh, well, we're fighting the English side. It's like, what? Um, but I mean, that kind of, among, you know, obviously amongst the English, I suppose, it, I mean, the English working class or at least the non-aristocracy, they've always been much more, that like, French is considered like posh and fancy and, you know, the kind of innate hostility that which there isn't even, even to the Germans, really. I mean, even, I mean, obviously, hostility to the Germans, like, peaked a little bit in the early 20th century, but, uh, and even people said that about the First War in the trenches, they came back, they kind of came, the English soldiers, British soldiers came back much more hostile to the French than the Germans. I don't know how true that is, but there is a, just, um, I just think, because it's so, it's so close uh, physically, but, you know, two, there are two countries that are very culturally different in so many ways. It's, it's quite jarring to them to be so close. But I mean, there is a love there as well. There is a genuine on both sides, I think. Huge. I mean, I, I admire they, you know, they bring things to the table in Europe that other countries don't. And they, I kind of admire their sense of their kind of nationalism is quite a relief compared to England and Germany, which are so sort of cowed and pathetic about everything. Um, I mean, obviously, we know why the Germans are now cowed and pathetic and probably good reasons for that but um yeah they're in the they're, let's put it, they're in the sin bin for a little bit longer but eventually the they might got a few more years in the sin bin before everyone forgets yeah. you know that business but um you know the french still they still like make stuff they're still kind of proud of the they can you know like gets built build stuff they, they like worry about energy security they you know they consider that their job in civil service is to promote french interests which i don't think the british civil service are that keen on um yeah and i think it's kind of admirable but also it's just a it's a beautiful language and the history there is just you know the the, the amount of history that's there i mean even england's quite recent in comparison really well we might change gears here we're, we're keen to chat about the state of politics in the uk uh as well as the british sitcom blackadder which you penned an article about recently. John and I, we're, we're big Blackadder fans. Uh, and, and we also need to get your thoughts on the new work, James Bond. But before we do, uh, I'd like to talk about Queen Elizabeth briefly. Uh, by the time this episode airs, we would have had the first anniversary of her passing. And I wanted to get your thoughts on her reign as queen and on the British monarchy in general. Do you think her passing marks a turning point in, in British culture? Um, I think a funeral was a big event, um, seem to represent a country that's sort of like in decline or a country that's transitioned to use that word again uh it was such a i mean it was a brilliant event it was really very well done but it was also i can't imagine when charles dies and when william has his coronation it's going to be anything like it it was it was a sort of passing of an old country you know like i must have written this but like you know during her reign 1952 to you know, everything in the country is transformed in every possible way. There's been a complete religious, demographic, like moral revolution that holds on. The country is completely unrecognisable. I mean, there's no monarch in history, I think, who has ever presided over that amount of change. And yet she was a completely passive observer, really, of events, didn't, um, didn't really influence them in any way. And, yeah, I mean, I think when, I mean, I presume Charles will live another 30 years because, you know, the royal family being part lizards, 
obviously have his very good <laughs> longevity. And, you know, his father, he lives in 99. So, um, yeah, I mean, hopefully he'll be with us a long time. But, um, yeah, I, I just can't imagine that it'll, it'll be the same kind of cult country when um, when Charles passed away. So, yeah, it's, it's, um, it was the, the 8th of September, wasn't it? Is that right? Yeah. I, I think so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, her her apolitical posture in in public life, which which you mentioned, I I personally yearn for this. You know, I'm sick of of being lectured to by rich sporting stars, actors, or or other elites. Do you think that King Charles and Prince William and the others are going to follow her example, or are they going to? I know Charles sort of would weigh in on climate change stuff and 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 if you sort of dip his toe into sort of woke issues, but do you think they're going to simmer that down and 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 follow her lead? I think Charles has been pretty quiet, hasn't he, since he's become king. I think that was the understanding. I mean, I think on architecture, he's, I mean, I agree with him. So, but I understand that, you know, it's still probably a bad idea for the monarch to speak about something, even if he agrees with me. Um, and I think William seems pretty smart and his wife's pretty smart. So I think he probably understands that's the way to do it. I mean, obviously the big thorn in, in the side is like the Harry issue and the, the Harry and Meghan melodrama and being a constant kind of source of conflict with the family that that seems to have simmered down a bit though like i haven't heard much from from those two for a little while yeah i mean maybe it's all um i mean maybe it's all maybe it's all like got better i don't know maybe they've come to agreement i just don't really see how it's not going to continue to be a like running sore if she you know she's obviously incentivized to um to kind of attack the royal family and for whatever reason she feels that she you know hasn't been treated in the correct way even though most people in britain i think even the americans have turned against her apparently in polls haven't they um but it's you know it's it's all you know it's obviously sad like the father and son thing is is um i mean i you know there's comparison made prince andrew but the harry thing is obviously more damaging to the royal family because the prince andrew thing is okay the prince is like a bit of a sweaty perv but he's done this thing and like he can be punished for it, but it's not like an ongoing family row, which is like more damaging to any kind of authority. I'm still uh, generally, I think the royal family probably going to survive a long time. I just there's no there's no alternative. Like there's no there's no political. You, you can't point to any political politician or anyone in Britain. You think I'd rather they were running the country. That it's just yeah. You know, faith in democratic politics is like the declines more than the kind of confidence in the royal family. So they're basically, you know, they're basically going to be there forever. I think. Yeah, so so you don't think there's much uh, much support for a Republican movement in 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 the UK? I mean, it's like twenty twenty five percent, but it's been like that for like fifty or sixty years. If you look at um, you know most social issues have become kind of steadily more liberal, progressive over the last fifty years. Sometimes it accelerated, especially in the last ten years. But the royal family have just kind of stuck um, at the same point. I mean, even people who aren't particularly mad about them we kind of see that they are the sort of least of what bad alternatives and uh you know if you're on the center left the the the, the royals actually have kind of quite good center left outcomes i mean they they tend to be a sort of like a focus for sort of otherwise right-wing energies which could become actually you know more aggressive or um you know they tend to be kind of like social democratic and you know like um soft leftish um and I mean, the, the only argument against the royal family is I just think it's a bit cruel to them. The whole thing, the whole kind of Truman Show bubble, is to raise people like that is seems to me, yeah, like a bit cruel. But there's no actual like political arguments against it. The idea is that oh, I, I know I was grown up, I can never be head of state. It's like who, so what? Who wants to be head of state? Like it's just that's mental. 
Um, I mean, I, I assume it. I mean, people have always assumed Australia would become public, but it doesn't seem to be. I don't know. That doesn't yeah, seem to be much. We had a disastrous uh, referendum on this twenty years ago. Uh, yeah, basically the question, the question, the, the way you 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 nail people in a referendum here is you have a really complicated and dumb question, and then people just get in there and say, "I don't understand this," and so then that was that. But uh, there's like, yeah, it, there's no, there's not much of an appetite for it, you know. Now, I mean, the obvious thing would be like to have Australia could have its own branch of the House of Windsor. So you have a separate monarch who goes and live in Australia. I mean, you could have Harry. I mean, like, that'd be amazing. <laughs> I think we could convert Harry. I think, like, the problem is, yeah, like, you know, we are, we're not as rugged as as people think we are, but we're not, we, you know, we could unpussify him a little bit, I think. When you see pictures of him, there's a recent picture of him in the Beyonce concert, and, like, you know, these tickets are gold dust, and he just looks so miserable, so crushed. He looks like he just... And when you look at the pictures in the old days, when he's like in, you know, Afghanistan, running around, just having a great time, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, he so looks now he's like just... a hero then, and he's just ruined it by shacking up with this, with this, as we know, this woman that I'm clearly attracted to. So, um, <laughs> uh, you hate her. <laughs> well, this could be a good transition point. Uh, oh, there's that word again. God damn it! They've ruined that word. You know, segue. That, that'll be the title of this episode. Yeah, but like that, maybe they should call it a sex segue from now on. So, um, uh, from the royals, uh, there's a, a new novel out called uh, "On His Majesty's Secret Service," written by one Charlie Higson, who is the one of the co-creators of. I'm going to say one of literally one of the greatest shows ever made in the history of the television, uh, the Far Show uh, by Paul Whitehouse. And uh, Charlie Higson. Now, in a piece that you, you've written about this, uh, this this uh, book that he's written. So Charlie's written a couple of young Bond novels, and that was his apprenticeship. And he's written this adult one now. And um, uh, but you, the first thing you mentioned in your piece is that you've actually met Charlie Higson, which I was amazed by. Yeah, well, I interviewed him like years ago. I was must have been twenty four. So, but this was back in when I worked for Nuts. This was that Gentleman's Interest magazine, um, which I. So I started out my transition. Uh, and yeah, and I just interviewed. What a bold um, title. What a bold title. Yes. No, think about that, Ed. It's really, I'd like, I mean, I'd like to write about it more extensively once, just because the culture at the time, like the 90s and noughties, like the peak raunchiness of the, rev the sexual revolution, and all revolutions go from these like libertarian, anarchic phrases to the kind of authoritarian stage when like the Stalin takes over. It happens all the time. And that's happened now. And just the norms of what was acceptable are just so unthinkable today. I mean, yeah, people got away with a lot. Anyway, so so I had to call. He had he was he wrote screen. He was a screenwriter for a film, so I called him up. Anyway, the thing failed, and it was it was like really stressful for journalists because you know you can be in big trouble. So you absolutely fucked it up. And um, but anyway, I, I called, called him back. Said, "Oh, I'm sorry. This has never happened to me before." And he like laughed, and then he said, "Yeah, we did the whole thing." So I just thought, "What a lovely guy." Sometimes you do because a lot of celebrities are pricks, but then sometimes you speak to and meet someone, they're really actually really nice. And um, but anyway, so I felt. So cut a long story short, a reader or an acquaintance I know sent me like the pictures of the new Bond book he'd written. So which came out this? It came out a few months ago, but he hasn't really picked up on. And I tweeted the pictures, and I thought. Okay, these because like the new Bond, he's he's like a sort of 
he's like a very like centrist kind of center left type and he had the kind of bond narratives about how he thinks like right-wing populism is is terrible and that um you know the villain the villain is kind of like a nigel farage character who's sort of oh you know he's and and at one point they say oh well in his organization bond was shocked because they didn't even have like 50 50 representation between men and women there wasn't even diversity <laughs> like, <laughs> just like oh come on it's like i just this is just not like james, james bond, right? but james bond doesn't give a, give a shit about that i just can't see him i don't know and anyway so the tweet got like much, and I actually like locked my account and thought this. Is, I feel a bit bad about him now because everyone's just like saying blah blah or attacking him, uh, and they got like a you know a million page views over it. And um, so I said I deleted it, and then that made it worse because lots of people like piled in and attacked me and said, "said Don't be such a pussy, cuck, weakling." Ed, um, yeah, be... what's that? I was going to say that that they would you would have got accused of being a, just a total a royal cuck for getting rid of it. Massive cuck. Um, and um, so then I just saw the timeline. He would spend his whole day arguing with like these really like small Twitter accounts, you know, like Wessex Groiper or something like arguing about the same site. Why are you doing, mate? Just you know, it's time you got your coat. And um, so anyway, I wrote about it. I just thought I thought it, it's fine. And now everyone, I think everyone's now tweeting extracts from this book. And I think the Spectator did a really good piece about it. And I think other you know publications now will do it. Um, but I mean, it is kind of funny just because it just seems like this is not what sort of James Bond. I mean, but his argument, man, well, I kind of agree with that. I say if you are a public school educated man, the 35 who works at the foreign office, you probably are quite progressive and lefty now because those are kind of in England. If you're if you're posh and I mean, maybe if you're a train killer, you wouldn't be. But I was going to say, is this, yeah. is this the guy, this is, this is, we're talking about a guy with a license to kill here who is, who is a, uh, you know, a, a a, a, an anti-hero, a um, doing it for king and country. He's a he uses people. He lies. He's he's kind of a bad guy, and we like him. For that. He's a pussy hound. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I don't know if he, if he still is a pussy hound in the new book. I imagine he. I mean, he. You don't want Bond to get me too, do you? That'd be awful. Well, no. Um, in the new movie, which you mentioned, what is it? No time to die. He mainly spent his time um, having deep and meaningful conversations with, <laughs> with, with women who were fully dressed, like way up to like mumsy-looking women, and they just sat around talking about their relationship. So it's such a bore. Um, I don't. I don't want to like spoilers, but I was really glad. I was almost like cheering in the cinema when he when he when he dies. Yeah. Um, and I thought finally <laughs> he got this shit out of his misery and. Yes. The only way now, presumably, I thought, would be like you'd have a sort of 60s era Bond as a kind of like, you know, historical piece, because that's the only way you can make him interesting, because he's not allowed to sort of be that character anymore. But apparently they are making a new one. I just think, I mean, I don't know. I, I thought so. OK, when he goes out of publication, when it goes out of copyright, I'm going to write my own one where, where George Soros is the villain. But I thought another angle was considering how common autogynephilia is in the military and amongst spies, like that would be actually a big room where Bond transitions, but he's still completely like cold killer. And, and he's like, <laughs> I'm not sure it would make that into a movie, but you know, you never know. Ed, I don't, I don't yeah, get you never know. Because we're, we, we quite like Bond and, um, you know, we've got it in the right, we don't want, we don't go to conventions or anything, but we, we, we it's, it's an enjoyable fantasy. And, and, I just don't understand why, like, what the hell? I mean, you're not inside Charlie Higson's head, but what the hell is this guy thinking? Like, you know, he, he's meant to he, be. He's misread his audience. But, the, but they do, though. They do misread the audience. 
Is, is it it's really, I don't know, I bet there's loads of people who, I mean, I bet it's selling quite well, and I bet, I, I know, I, like, the rest, the number of people in Britain who listen to the rest is politics, which I, I just literally, I can, Alistair Campbell, and, you know, this kind of upper normie, centrist, centre-left politics, this is kind of very widespread now. I mean, I'm sure, I don't know, I'm sure a lot of people would like a Bond who's sort of ch- going around chasing Nigel Farage, wouldn't, I mean? I, I want a Bond. I want the. I always liked the Bond, but whenever they, the, but also, aren't the villains meant to be? We don't have to go into it too much, but but the, it it's always really interesting when they pick a villain who is, you know, even the ones that are a bit on the nose, like Tomorrow Never Dies, which is from the '90s, and the bad guys like a a Murdoch style, you know, like media magnate or something. Like even that's at least attempting to look beyond what's going on in front of us. Like, shouldn't the bad guy now not be Nigel Farage, but really? You know, someone who's trying to to pit left and right against each other, some corporate elite, some BlackRock type figure or something, or you know. Yeah, I mean that'd be novel, wouldn't it? Um, I I don't know. I mean, it's just a bit of fun. It's, I mean, I was a massive fan of the films when I was younger. I mean, you know, I what's your favourite one? Uh, I've got a very soft spot for the Spy Who Loved Me. I'm very much Roger Moore era. I mean, I, I can. Yes, I can me too. Me too. But. Also, Barbara Back was just amazingly beautiful and just the, the sexy Russian woman who you never know if she was going to kiss you or just shoot you. I mean, it's just... Can't but be you're it. not... See, you've already dated yourself because you're not allowed to talk about beautiful women and sexy... Like, like if you said, oh, I saw the new James Bond, oh, there was so much sexy parts in it. <laughs> I really liked <laughs> Like, people would just... They would be outraged say... What you mean is that the the woman the, the woman of color who took over as 007, What you mean is that she was fucking like you know amazing is what you meant to say, right? And you say, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. Just 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 leave me alone. Yeah, I mean, as you know, we we live in a much more, I guess, a much less tolerant society than we were forty years ago in some ways, and you know. The sort, the sort of the longhouse culture is, is not a good place for bonds. I don't know. It, maybe, maybe then with you know this will just become a sort of I don't know. Maybe it's just maybe they will come back. Maybe maybe you know. Ed, we don't we don't have to put up with it though. Like we can move on from bond in a sec. But because I went to see it with my wife, and my wife was she is equally as dumbfounded and outraged, and she's like a career woman and the rest of it. But she watches these movies and she goes, "Who is this for?" Like she goes, "I want to see." You know, woman in a backless dress, and and I want and I want that fantasy. It's a particular kind of of like aggressive, um, you know, male fantasy that I guess leverages a little bit of complicity from a certain type of you know uh, average woman or something. And yet, you know, it's what what you end up watching is like just this um, a corporate video, which is um, yeah equally uh, sort of self-flagellating and disappointed in itself, and also not pleasing anyone there's no man or seemingly any woman who wants to go to these bond movies or anything and and uh anymore they we sort of do it out of obligation and we go oh geez i wish you know what i wish this was um the spy who loved me where it was like entendres and sexy women and karate chops to the neck and stuff yeah i mean it could only really be done ironically couldn't it that's why i mean that's why i think that's the has a period piece you could get away with it because you could sort of pretend to you know, you could pretend to be saying, oh, this is outrageous. This is what people were like in the 60s and 70s. But while really going, yeah, this is great. I really wish, you know, I wish, really wish that was me. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? Uh, yeah, who knows? It's, it's, it is sad, but, you know. All right. Well, 
we'll 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 move on to to uh uh british comedy because we you know this is what uh, we initially wanted to get you to talk on uh we'll move on to blackadder in a second but maybe just thinking broad you know in terms of of the comedy uh, uh you know culture and comedy we i mean for, it's for our money british comedy is is the gold standard that is the gold standard of comedy uh i mean i meet people who say oh what about the american office or something and usually that's a sign for me to to not listen to their opinions uh, any anymore, um, you know. If I need to tell you why the UK office is the real quiz, uh, then you know we got a problem. Uh, so, what, what do you think the secret is to British comedy? It's uh, a good point. I mean, it's um, presumably like it's very like cultural because I mean, you know, the, the Americans did produce stuff like The Simpsons. So I don't think I mean I don't think anything is as good as The Simpsons really. Any TV show, probably ever. Well, maybe not. But in terms of comedy. Um, it's very culturally specific, isn't it? I mean, Australia is much cu- kind of culturally similar to Britain than it is to to America. So presumably, like for that reason, British comedies and they're just you know there are lots of Brits in Australia proportionally compared to America, aren't there? So um, I guess it translates better. You know, um, I've written before in the past about uh, I think you know the, the com- I mean I think it's very hard to, to quantify, isn't it? Because everyone everyone thinks the comedy of their like youth is like the best era right? and comedy doesn't last like like faulty towers is like the earliest thing I, I find funny anything before that i just don't really like the taboos and the kind of like the release of like social pressures just doesn't apply because i don't really understand because i wasn't growing up in that time um and what about and then as you get older, camping, or... I, I, cannot, yes. I, like, I find it i find it funny because it's just it's almost because it's so bad but I, I i kind of find it and i kind of appreciate it as part of our heritage it's like part of the kind of post-war British heritage and it's like Sid James is a funny character I mean it is funny but it's kind of funny in a like very it's funny in a way that someone's like farting is funny right I mean it's it's intrinsically or someone falling over that's that's funny but it's not like great it's not like great <laughs> wit is it I mean, um it's not like amazing amazing one-liners so yeah I mean everyone tends to think and then people get older they tend to have like sense of humor failures more and more as you get older you just don't find things funny because you just don't really like you're just not with it anymore everyone kind of dreads that a bit but i do think there i mean something definitely has happened to comedy generally um in the sense that you know the kind of period where where there was a kind of freewheeling anything goes has definitely declined has definitely gone a little bit um and there is much less freedom to make kind of jokes about i mean i you know i've the Borat phenomenon was a good example of that. You know, Borat is a very funny. But Borat kind of ironically basically used kind of old-fashioned, like, ethnic jokes. That's all it was. It just made fun of foreigners, which is very funny because, I mean, foreigners are funny, right? Um, but it's done under kind of, like, you know, oh, this is terrible. I'm laughing at that. But, um, you know, he was basically he's basically an Arab and, um, and he goes and meets loads of red state Americans and the humour is in the kind of bigotry. But in, you know, in the more re- recent one, all all the kind of jokes were about like the little people. Like he like he's a he's a protected comedian, right? He's like he can he's a wealthy man. He can do whatever he likes. He could make jokes satirizing all the big taboos in America, but he never would. No one would because your literally your life would be made a nightmare by by you wouldn't get work and you'd just get thousands of messages of abuse. You know, another thing like tw- twenty um bonfire vanities. Okay, not strictly comedy, but it's a satire that was commissioned in twenty. 20- 14 by Amazon, a new TV series. No one has heard anything about it since. It just disappeared because like, the jokes, the, the satire in that, in that story would just be unsayable because it's it's too powerful. It's like making jokes about 
the, the central Politburo committee in like 1950s Russia. They've got all the power. You don't you don't joke about them. And I think there is a certain amount of um, you know there there is a cer- certain amounts of authoritarianism in the culture now, uh, and like kind of I suppose scolding. It's hard to say it without making it sound like you, you're saying that women are doing it, but it is a, a sort of more feminine authoritarian kind of level of scolding, which m- makes it very hard. You know, comedians are very. I know of someone, you know, a presenter who had a comedian on. Um, makes you know, a comedian is talking on the show, make jokes about all sorts of things. Uh, but before the episode, he just said, "Whatever you know, whatever you say, whatever we talk about, do not ask me about the trans issue, um, and do not make me like." I don't want to have to answer those questions. I don't want to have to say, define what a woman is. It's like, this is so, this is like the perfect material for comedy, isn't it? But it's, but it's not because it's a genuine taboo. And like the, the religious authorities have really genuine power to, um, to make your life's misery. So I, think, I mean, I'm not sure what you can make about, you know, transsexuals or something, but you know, the, the fact there's the certain issues are completely off, off the radar, basically. Well, well, I mean, even on that, like, I suppose the lot, you know, we could talk about a million different shows, but Little Britain, for instance, whether I mean, which I was always a big. Sorry, I was going to say that's a classic example. That's been rapidly, you know, the culture has changed so much since since that came out, and that but was probably, done, I guess, like the hype it goes right. Those guys have they did the full thing, so they were all in on on I'm a lady. And there and fat suits and fat women and and fat women of color, which is in the third one. Like yeah, that's yeah. a hilarious sketch, you know. When she says, "Oh, it's like the black hole of Calcutta," you know, like like so they they, <laughs> so they did they did all of that, and then they like now cut to now, and they have like denounced themselves. Like there's they put like messages before it. They've deleted stuff. Like like well, I'm sure they're thinking of CGing it or something. Like getting rid of everything. Like it, they, like they've got done the full um, uh, turning their back on it. I mean, actually, we asked someone else this recently. Um, I mean, Ed, what do you think? Do you think that they should just stand their ground and say, "Oh, look, it was a different time, and you guys can just sort of just calm down, and it, it is what it is." And you know, we wouldn't do it now, but we'll leave it. Or do you think that you have to do the other thing where you say, I'm so sorry and go down that route? No. I mean, I don't think you should, I don't think you should ever apologize unless you've, I mean, I can see why, you know, like David Baddiel feels bad about his sketches about uh, Jason Lee, the footballer who had, um, you know, the jokes about pineapple head. He had, you know, this hairstyle, which, and looking back, that seems a bit coarse and a bit crude. And even at the time, I think it, people thought, Okay, maybe not the racial sensitivity, but people thought it was a bit mean and unpleasant. So where where you have been, where people have been a bit mean and unpleasant, I can see why. If it's stuff about identity stuff, so you know, if there if there is um, like pressure to to cave because it offends identity groups, I think you should never apologise. Really, I, I just generally think just say tell them to get stuffed. But also those some of those sketches there. Think about think about. I mean, it seems silly to talk about Little Britain, but like think about Andy and and his carer. Like if if I don't need to tell you why that's funny. Like those guys, those guys. There's, there's are, so much truth in that too. There's so too, much truth in that sketch. And they're the worst. Like they're the those guys are the worst. Like you 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 know you feel sorry for them obviously in real in the real life, but it's just inherently fun. There's so many, and even with the the um the I'm a lady sketch, like they don't just want to be ladies; they want to be Victorian ladies, and <laughs> yeah. it's ridiculous. Like it's totally ridiculous. 
you know, and it's funny. And the moment we start to pull it apart, it's not funny. You know what I mean? Like, like that's the, I, I don't, I just don't get why um, people are, uh, are intent on, I, I don't know, like just, it seems like it's an anti-comedy movement. Like, like, they're, like they're, they're, they're intent on never finding any of this funny and refusing that something is funny when it plainly is. Like all that stuff in Little Britain is still funny. It's not like the world has changed so much that I go, like the two. It's all subjective though, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you can, like a lot of people, even the time, a lot, like Little Britain wouldn't have been made a few, like a lot of the most cancelled comedies, it wouldn't have been made 30 years earlier. It was just too grotesque and a lot of people thought it was too grotesque. I think a lot of it's quite grotesque, but um, I mean, the answer to that is, okay, just, you know, fine, just don't watch it. Um, you know, it was it was a bit out there and... You know, my my, my you know, general things I always say is that you know, there's always going to be some kind of moral authority, isn't there? There's always going to be some form of censorship. I just think there's it used to be kind of like you know the, the church or the kind of the sort of general so you know great you know general society forces who are sort of keen on on um, on morality patrolling, and now it's just sort of a bit more anarchic and you know decided by social media or decided by issues of identity you know like james bond's and you know james bond when it came his books came out and the novel and the films came out the that paul johnson condemned them for being too you know sexy and um you know sort of and then now you know now it's sexist so but, i mean there's inevitably going to be like you can't have a power vacuum of morality because someone's gonna like to i mean my 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 main complaint is i just think some of the a lot of the, the morality controllers now are just basically mental um and, and there's no kind of coherence to, to their to what's right and wrong, and there's no, um, and there's kind of no sound judgment. Where even, at least before, like, you know, censorship was abolished in '68, there were quite clear rules. And like, the worst thing is when you don't have clear rules and things. That 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 means nothing can get done, nothing can be made because no one is sure what's acceptable. Um, so yeah, I think I get the impression comedians kind of live in this kind of kind of state of like terror about you know what's what is going to get them in trouble with with the most. Yeah members of the crowd it's definitely it's definitely having a chill i mean i'm not like i don't have my 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 fingers on the pulse of like comedy so i don't know how you know how much this actually affects things on the ground but my impression is it does a little bit yeah i, I think it would be difficult to be an up-and-coming comedian i think because you would be constantly walking on eggshells i think you'd like if you're if you're dave Chappelle, you can kind of get away with it because you're so big you know but cancer culture doesn't really if you know it's like jake rowling you know she's Okay, you know, whatever. She's got a billion pounds, or whatever, and she's still selling hundreds of millions. But that, you know, the next JK who's in their twenties wouldn't want to be so outspoken about those issues with you. So, yeah, I mean, as long as you know, Dave Chappelle's an interesting one because he kind of won, didn't he? Because I guess you know, and all these things, money talks, right? So, um, if a company, whatever, has employees who are making a fuss about it, but then they have a a, a star who's making loads of money, then that kind of wins. You know, on this kind of um. Kind of maybe not. It's a bit of a segue, another segue. But I'm reading a book, Richard Hanani's uh, story. It's like the origins of woke, and he's very interesting about how he goes through. And he said, you know, he denies the cultural influence of these ideas. He says it's mostly basically just the law. So com corporations have to. Corporations are so vulnerable to being sued for things like sexism and racism if they don't basically clamp down on anyone making any comment at work. And secondly they go out have to go out of their way to show they are on board with um you know that progressive ideas because that will reduce the chance of them getting sued so you know something like you think so like netflix if if uh, if some trans employees say oh you can't have david chappelle uh because 
they could potentially then have massive lawsuits against the company um, saying that we were made to feel like in danger or something. And that's the thing that's actually causing the censorship thing. Um, you know, so it's all basically down to lawyers creating this environment. But, you know, as you say, if you, um, I suppose as long as you're successful, then you can probably get away with it. But it's a squid game. Like, like you've got it, you, it, um, it, you, there's no there's no opportunity where you can get up and I don't know like work your material and see what works and what doesn't it's like it's literally like you know oh I've got and you and the only stuff that's going to work is risky stuff so you go all right well I've got to I've got to bet the house every time I go up you know yeah. and it, it could end up being a Michael Richards event or something you know where I'm recorded good game is it, it I've never Field myself to watch skid, 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 skid game, Squid Game here. It's like really violent, right? It's like horrible, right? I mean, I'm not it sure is, I can. Yeah. Well, yeah. Can I get upset? But, well, no, it's it's it, it's it's very good. I must say, it is very good. It uh, is good. It was yeah. pro- it's probably my kids want to watch. I, mean, I thought maybe they're not quite. That's probably quite bad parenting. Although, I mean, I'm very tolerant about letting them watch violent stuff, but um, I don't believe it affects them. Hopefully, but there, that, apparently, that's a bit. That's quite excessive, isn't it? Um, yeah, so sorry, what, what were we talking about? Comedy again, sorry. <laughs> well, may, maybe we should talk about Blackadder because you, you penned an article to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the British uh, sitcom. Uh, and, and John and I, we, we both grew up watching this show on the ABC, which is our national broadcaster. Um, maybe for the benefit of, of, of some of our US listeners, Blackadder is a classic British sitcom created by Rowan Atkinson and Tony Curtis. Um, who was responsible for four weddings uh, and a funeral Richard, and love, actually. Richard Curtis. Oh, sorry, Richard Curtis, of course. Yeah, I'm thinking of... Um... Is also a great man and is in a, in a different sphere, but yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, maybe I was thinking of Baldrick. Isn't his name Tony? And No, what's yeah, his Tony name? Robinson. Tony Robinson. Yes. Yeah. That's right, yes. Well, it ran for four seasons through the 1980s with each season being set in a different historical period. Now, if if you haven't seen it, Stop looking at memes and doom scrolling about trans stuff and get it done because it is fantastic. Uh, so, Ed, what what's your personal history with with Blackadder? Well, I remember it from the I, I started. I remember watching when I was nine. So when I was just about, I looked at back on the Wikipedia to check. It wasn't like another false memory that I've inserted into my head. But yeah, just around the nine that the third season came out, and I remember I joined. Being in, I was in new school and I didn't really know anyone. It was a bit kind of that weird feeling, and uh, just talking to another guy in the playground who was also watching this amazing um, comedy show. And it just, you know, that kind of, I loved it so much. And uh, and that was, so that was season three, the one set in the Regency period, which I think is my second favorite one, or maybe my favorite one, I'm not sure. So Blackadder is like the, you know, the sort of, um, it's a, a lot of it's about class, like a lot of British comedy is. So he's a sort of servant, he's a butler, but he has a sort of like servant underling, Audric, who's a complete imbecile. And then he has his boss who's, um, the Prince Regent, who's also a complete imbecile, but in a sort of posh way, who's played by Hugh Laurie. And it's, it was just incredibly funny and it, incredible dry humour. Ron Atkinson had this incredible way of doing put-downs. Um, and then, so, you know, the, the, force, the, first se- so, anyway, the first season was slightly different. The character was different. Like The, the Blackadder character wasn't this kind of cunning, um, arrogant figure from late. He's much more sort of weaselly and a bit of a, bit of a loser. Uh, and interestingly... You know, I learned later that they originally made him like he later was. So in the in the pilot, which was just put out around the time of the article, I think it's the 40th mm. anniversary. Um, 
but they decided to change it. So the first season's kind of, I mean, the first season definitely the weakest. It's got its fans. But then the second season came along, a much lower budget. Uh, Michael Grade, who's I think, head of BBC Two, like, okay, we'll give it another chance. Much lower budget. Um, and they brought in Ben Elton, who became the kind of co-writer with Curtis. Um, and Ben Elton did a lot of stuff in the 80s. I mean, everyone in British comedy will know him. And um, yeah, and Blackadder 2 was incredibly funny. And that was set in the Tudor period. And he's just this kind of... He's just frustrated guys. It was I mean like a lot of those great comedy characters. David Brent's classic one, you know, um, at, at, you know, Basil Fawlty as well, and also I mean Partridge to certain extent. Just sort of people frustrated people who feel that they should be higher up in the system than they are, and they like the system, and they're kind of quite conservative in that sense. They just want, they just think they should be at the top of it, uh, and you know, as he goes through the series, Blackadder goes further and further down the sort of social class. So he goes from being a Remember the royal families are an aristocrat to butler, and then finally in the the final one, that you know he's this um, captain in the, in the army, you know, a career captain in the British army uh, from the sort of late Victorian period. He now finds himself like facing like the Germans. It's just, you know it's absolutely terrifying, and it ends with this kind of incredibly poignant scene when they're about to go out to battle, and then the guns stop, and then one of them says, "Oh yeah, you know we survived it, the Great War, nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen," and it's kind of like bitter laughed, and it's like, "No, they're not, and they will have to go out," um, and um, and you know, you presume they're sort of all cut down and killed, which is a very, very poignant way to end. And it sort of ended there. And apparently, filming that scene was actually quite terrifying because they're using loads of firecrackers, and and they're all generally quite scared when they when they made it. Which is, you know, the secret of good acting. You know, actually, um, like the, from The Exorcist or something. You know, made them really scared. But um, you know, they've been talking about it since that they should make another one, and it, but nothing's really happened. But I think it's just one of those things where it's just good to end. Like The Office was like that. The Office ended in such perfect way you know two series and then a special and it was just it, and you know 40 towers ended off two series and, and sometimes that kind of just makes it so much more of a work of art than something that just kind of drags out a little bit i feel like the end if just on the because the, the, we talked we talked about the difference between the us and the uk and for me you know look it's horses for courses and 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 you know we love american comedy of course we do uh but one thing you don't get generally speaking is pathos and there's something about that ending of Blackadder or for me the ending of The Office isn't the special the ending is the ending of season two that is the real ending when he said like that is the ending you know she says no to, to Tim and we, we end with with Brent's line about Dolly Parton that's the end of the show you know really the, the other stuff's a bonus so do you uh, do you think the, the like the Christmas special basically was a was a sop the sentimentality yes. could have ended in, in I love the it. traditional of British. Of course, I love it. Academy. I love to. I love to weep about it. I, I think it's beautiful. It's beautifully done. But the the the, the genius, the, the the just the the diamond pointed genius of ending at season two, like that. And that is that's ultimate. That is just like it has so much integrity. And that's the same with Blackadder. Like that when they do that big push. You just go. Is it like? I mean, uh, Ricky, we've talked about this. It's part of you that wonders if you're if it's a joke. You're like, is this a joke? Like, is this is this? Am I being pranked here? And then you go, no, this is really the end of the show. Like, oh my god! And you, you can't, they can't end it like this. They can't end it like this. This is just horrible. And then no, that's yeah. the way it ends. Um, there's so much money involved that they just—it's a gravy train. They just have to push the series forward. You know, even sitcoms like John and I were talking about Spin City 
not that long ago. And so Michael J. Fox leaves the show and they get Charlie Sheen, you know, and, and in Two and a Half Men, Charlie Sheen, he, he leaves right. and they bring I someone else in as well, you know, like they ask a kutcher. So, you know, it's, it, I guess because there's so much money involved and there's so the stakes are much higher, they just want to milk that thing. Yeah, bigger writing team. Well, yeah. I mean, the British, team, British one will have like two or three writers and they'll have like a whole, you know, big room full of them. So I suppose, I suppose if there's a couple of writers writing a series, they can't really, um, they run out of, they run out of material and run out of humour eventually, didn't they? I mean, I found out a peep show a little bit, I think by season nine or something, it was just, it was starting, it was just so depressing, like nothing good was happening to Mark's life. It was sometimes in the original, you know, the first few, sometimes you'd end on a winner, but it was just increasingly well, they're getting older down. and they're not you want them to start to get having a family and stuff you're like, all right this is getting sad now you guys need yeah, to, they, you, yeah the, old dude, the old dude brothers need to grow up or whatever <laughs> yeah yeah it's like you're just two guys in their 40s living in croydon and it's just like this is just so bleak this is unbearable but with, but with blackadder we it's, what really struck us when we we're watching it this time was that it seemed like it was written by very smart men what what happened to this breed of like obsessive, educated, visionary comedy writer? Are they are they allowed at the at the BBC anymore? Uh, I think well, I don't know. Um, I mean, I know the, the BBC is like losing a lot. I know in the podcasting game, it's kind of starting to lose to smaller companies. I mean, especially Gary Lineker's company. Um, because I mean, some for sort of political reasons, you know, like to do with diversity. You know, like a lot of the popular a lot of popular podcasts um often involved like two men for example and they might happen to be two white men they might happen to be two public school educated white men let's not get personal all right (laughs) just another two white men doing a podcast no but i mean and those tend to work because the dynamic and the banter it it, like works and like so the rest history would not have been commissioned okay it's not a comedy show but it's very funny and it's it's very learned learned and sorry i'm pronouncing like homer simpson there learned um but that wouldn't that just the BBC can't produce that. They can't they couldn't commission two public school educated white guys to do a podcast. They just wouldn't be allowed. Um because they, they have to sort of tick certain boxes. I don't know how much that applies to comedy. Um comedy writing generally. I mean, I think I don't know. I mean it's still I mean, I presumably I, I mean America is the place to go, isn't it? That's where the succession right you know, the succession writers, for example. Mm. I mean, I think where there's money, they're all always attract very dead you know very talented um kind of very determined people who are good at good mm. at it basically well well blackadder was started by by two guys that met at university and they were just pretty much interested in comedy and that the idea that two friends would approach the bbc out of the blue and pitch a show and be given a chance just seems un- unimaginable to me today it's, it's you know it's what you said it's all that diversity stuff you know there'd be they'd get a team of diverse people together and then they'd get them to make a show, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, now you just start, pod- I mean, now you go on Spotify, wouldn't you? And you might, I mean, if you're good, you'd probably still make it, but I mean, there are definitely, um, there are definitely institutional hurdles in, um, I mean, politics definitely plays a part, I think in comedy, just cause it's so much about the sort of dynamic of the people. Um, and in Britain, it, it was, you know, British comedy. So there was kind of, a lot of the stand-up musical tradition in Britain was kind of quite a working-class thing, but then in that kind of era in the seventies and eighties, it became you know we're starting in the sixties really. Footlights it becomes very dominated by Oxford and Cambridge. Um, people like the Cambridge Footlights. I mean, they. I mean, if if 
if that kind of career had been open to more people, I don't know. I mean, there, there might have been lots of untapped people from different backgrounds who might have even done a better job. I don't know. I mean, it does seem strange that so much of the comedy from the 80s did come from this group who went to Cambridge together. Um, or Oxford. I think Oxford in the case of Ron Atkinson and Richard Curtis. Well, I mean, there's lots that occurred to us in this last in this last viewing. Like, you know, like any sitcom, the show's got a range of things um, that are completely forbidden now. Uh, mostly male cast, obviously, uh, cross-dressing as nuns uh, <laughs> in one scene, bawdy humour, gay panic, making fun of people's accents, which, which you know, happens a lot. Uh, surely uh, we can reach an equilibrium where we can enjoy all of these things again because, like, for example, even just take the accents. Like, accents are funny. And, like, mispronouncing stuff yeah. and whatever is funny. I mean, I know... You know, there are obviously certain like because it's very political now. Um, you've got to you, you've got to pick your target. <laughs> you know? But generally speaking, all of this stuff is um, it's not like all of this stuff is completely not funny anymore. No accents would always be funny, but yeah, you just have to. It's just like you know, uh, be careful what kind of company you're, you're making. These kind of I I, I don't think we're ever gonna. We're ever going to reach a point where it's like acceptable to joke about these things, to be honest. I mean, that sounds very pessimistic. I think we've got another a good 40 or 50 years of, like... Drudgery. You know, there'll be humour on, on, like, podcasts. It's not going to be on, on sort of mainstream TV. It's not going to be on, you know, in any kind of central forum. It's not going to be acceptable to, to joke about things again, I don't think, in a serious way. Not in... I don't know. I mean, but again, you know, maybe the market will put more... If, you know, if someone's makes money for people, then maybe... It work like David Chappelle, but generally I'm pessimistic. I, I think the brilliance of of Blackadder is that it has many layers. And and in preparation for for our talk today, I actually rewatched Blackadder. It's been quite a while for me, and I think at, at, you know I watched it as a young teen, and 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 I knew nothing of history, but I could laugh at at, at Baldrick and and Hugh Laurie because they were buffoons. And as an adult, I'm appreciating more and more the history in the show. You know. But yeah, also, yeah. also black out of situation, you know, I mean, he's desperately trying to climb that social ladder and it's, it's just sandwiched between two buffoons, you know. Um, do you think that that multi-layered comedy is, is part of its enduring appeal? Yeah. And I mean, I, I think a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the best comedy does work on different levels. I mean, The Simpsons, I mentioned before, is the obvious example. You can, uh, children will find it funny because Homer gets hit on the head, but it also has lots of like very, very funny satire and very, very good lines and you know it makes fun of a lot of things in society and the family um which you know which are very clever i mean the simpsons again is 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 another victim of the kind of you know the change in comedy you know they had to get rid of the indian character because that's somehow offensive but um because it because an indian never never ran a quickie mart in history yeah and it's just oh that's a stereotype i mean i also wonder could they would the simpsons be made because would Homer just not be a kind of lovable figure to a lot of Americans anymore? Because he's kind but, of. But, but, but isn't it? But isn't, aren't we being selective as well? I mean, you know, because and, and and people are going to, uh, you know, some of our listeners will be like, oh, like because we're getting butthurt about this. But you know, when you think about Homer being um, a, a complete moron and being a terrible father and being the butt of everyone's jokes, like the idea of fathers, like you know, idiot fathers. Is it really does stick out to you more and more once you have a kid that you go, oh wow, like really, like like so, you know, why are we, 
why are we so deeply offended by, but like, well, maybe you should just cancel the show. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if we're so deeply offended by Apu, the Quickie Mart guy, and then we're just going to let Homer be the biggest idiot in the world, like the ultimate idiot dad, and everyone go, oh, dads are such idiots. You know what I mean? Well, you've, you're, yeah, but you're, you know, I suppose you're, you're lower down the, the totem pole, aren't you? Um, so it's a bit, <laughs> is that even a wild phrase? I don't know. Part. I had, a friend who, um, I had a friend who hated, like, you know, Peppa Pig. Uh, he hated Daddy Pig because he just says, like, he just, like, he besmirches, like, dads everywhere because he's just such he's a cretin. Is he a simp, the dad in Peppa Pig? No, he's just an idiot. I mean, he's, he's, like, he's almost like a, he's, he's quite, he's quite like, a, almost like a British Homer Simpson. He's just a complete cretin. He gets everything wrong. He, he always must, it. I watched a lot of Peppa Pig, and I've been to even been to Peppa Pig World. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's with children, obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah, he always like you know he like electrocutes himself because doing the DIY and stuff like that. He's just a kind of cretinous, um, stupid dad. And obviously, you know, like the the women cats are clever. But I don't want to. I'm not like texturing and analysing Peppa Pig here. But I, I mean, I think all those kind of archetypes are like legitimate targets. I mean, they're all kind of you know the the stupid dad or the Indian quick mouth thing. I think you know these there's comedy is like about telling truths, right? And and if you're and if certain kind of patterns and archetypes in society are just kind of imp completely impossible to talk about or even mention then it, it's not going to be it might be like approved comedy but it's just not going to be very interesting it's not going to be it's not going to like target hard like the sense of relief you get from comedy when someone tells a joke which you're kind of all thinking um but there's a bit in um in the first the first blackadder where um edmund is being married off to a short stout homely and horny Spanish woman yeah, with, yeah. A <laughs> with, a with a mustache, which is a universal horror for everyone, like being trapped into a, like, you know, a betrothed into a terrible, you know, marriage like that. Look, it's not nice. It's not polite. But isn't it true? And isn't it ex also exactly what Edmund deserves? And, and, and on another yeah. level, you know, I love Miriam Margulies and I think she gets the joke as well. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. And Jim Broadbent as the translator, who's yes, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, that is everything. That's kind of you no know, sexual, you know, oversex, you know, unattractive women and foreigners with funny accents. I mean, that is, you know, comedy is not necessarily moral, is it? So you know, there's always been a like kind of conflict between the moral authorities and comedians. You know, so they've always been got in trouble. Uh, I just think today is no different. I mean, you know just a different kind of moral authority isn't it well they, they, they've recently slapped a language warning on on the start of blackadder episodes which i'm surprised at re-watching re blackadder i don't think it's quite as uh as offensive as say little britain or yeah much you know, or even mental isn't it really yeah so i'm surprised that they've that they've done that you know yeah i'm trying to think i suppose maybe there's maybe just the maybe it's because like you know people with foreign accents there's like a spanish torture in blackadder too isn't there uh Germans in back out of four, but you can but kind I, of make I fun think, of Germans. I mean, but... it's legendary. The accent stuff in black, it's legendary. I've been saying for decades now, many, many apologies. Yes, all of yeah. the stuff, all of those great, uh, those um, mispronunciations are perfect. I wouldn't change a thing, you know? Yeah, it was great. I mean, I mean, it's amazing. Um, I actually saw Ron Acton. On the street about six months ago i didn't say anything to him there's no anecdote there I, was too, I wouldn't want to go up to him and bother him he's you know and also what if he was horrible to me i would just be crushed what if he turned out to be a horrible guy yeah, i mean 
yeah. be broken. You should, you should never meet your heroes. Absolutely. What are you going to say as well? What are you going to say? Like, you're yeah. just like, oh, I love your work. And, you know? But, all right. Or, like, just like shout at him a line from one of his comedies. It would just say, yes, oh, yeah, oh. yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, Goodness. Well, actually, just before we we start wrapping up, we should get your your take on because you've read a lot of history. What is your read on the history in Blackadder? Because I mean, this is something that's come to us really late. Like we 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 didn't know about history much, and then we've watched Blackadder now, and we've gone, oh, I'm embarrassed. There's so much like English history in here. Is it, are they good at history? Um, well, obviously they. I mean, you know, they have to use a lot of poetic license. So the, the first one is all kind of like jump. Is all kind of nonsense because it doesn't really make any sense so i mean like it's based on like richard iii being succeeded by his nephew becomes richard the fourth who's then it's like brian blessed isn't he obviously i mean he was like he was 10 at the time so it doesn't make any sense um blackadder three i mean they they take quite a few figures who are slightly historically disjoined but they have to like dr dr johnson was a bit earlier than you know and they also you know feature french revolutionaries um even though you know it's um it's supposed to be set in the Regency period, which is 1811. You know, it's a bit of a jumble, but I don't think it you know, it really matters. It's, they're all people from that kind of known era. Uh, and, you know, same with Elizabethan. Um, I don't think they really take any, any liberties of Elizabethan. Obviously, the most interesting and controversial one is the First of War, because it's much like war a topic and a much more controversial one. And, um, you know, the Blackadder has often been... Uh, you know, there's the Blackadder version of the First of War. I mean, I guess Australia must have the same... Kind of obviously, the you know the first war is arguably even a big like Aurora, a more traumatic event in Australia because I suppose maybe, but also I suppose more kind of nation forming. Uh, but you know, huge numbers dead, and the Blackadder version is that it was all kind of pointless um, for no reason. You know, it was all just generals, you know, sending thousands of men to the slaughter for like tiny bits of mud. Uh, and there's obviously. And that was cited by a, a historian called Gary Sheffield, a forgotten victory, who said actually the first of all was worth fighting and the British army actually did really well and it wasn't they weren't wasted. I mean I tend to I don't know. I tend to think that the Blackadder thing probably does have quite a lot of truth in it, that you know, a lot it really wasn't worth fighting the war and it was I don't know, it must have I don't think for the men at the time they felt that so obviously Blackadder cynicism is a it, it is kind of anachronistic because I don't think people that many people at the time there weren't any like mutinies in the British Army and it was only in, like late twenties that people started thinking that. Um that's a kind of modern interpretation. But it was, you know, like a horrific, uh absolutely horrific thing to endure. And in that sense, like the ultimate case, you know, a lot of comedy is like where you're you're trapped in a situation you can't get out. And the trenches are like the ultimate trap thing. There's literally no way out for you except by death or if you're lucky injury um so yeah I, I just think it was a very like bold and clever thing for them to do and you know like i mentioned the piece ben elton's uncle um jeffrey elton's like a famous uh historian um who he consulted he's you know he said can you watch this you know can you read it first and he says he won his, his uncle's actually quite conservative like ben elton's like famously kind of like anti-fatcher kind of lefty um and he said his uncle was kind of, you know, won, won over and thought kind of the, the comedy worked, which is nice. But, yeah, it's just a great show. What, what What's your favourite season? I think two is kind of technically the wittiest. I think yeah. three is very um, – I like three as well, and I think I'd put those two almost together. Uh, four is not – I just think four, the humour is slightly starting to wear out, but it's still funny. I mean, I think one is the weakest just because like, his character is so weird and weasley and like pathetic. It's terrifying, you know I mean? it as, well. 
bloody and awful. Scared the pants off me when I was here. Peter Cook actually scares me whatever he's in, really. Yeah, yeah. he is kind of, yeah. I remember he was in Supergirl, wasn't he? He turned up in all sorts of yes, things. Yes, I was, was going to say, I, that, Ed, is a deep cut, and I didn't, I didn't want to say Supergirl just in case you hadn't seen it. You have seen it, and much props to you. Yeah, I can't. I, I don't know where that came from. I remember watching. I must have watched it a couple of times. But yeah, he's, I've just completely he's not thought. His boyfriend, creepy English boyfriend. Right. Watch that and see what it's uh, about. But yeah, yeah, he was a kind of like funny looking guy. But um, I think that that because by being in it, he sort of he anointed the show. It was like in the succession, the apostolic succession of British comedy. Peter Cook, this kind of legend of the sixties and seventies, you know, having this kind of brief moment before he's accidentally killed. Um, yeah, it was. Um, I mean, I only watched one later because it wasn't really. I mean, obviously, in those days, you had to wait for something to be on television. When you grew up in the eighties, nineties, mm-hmm. so, you know, trying to explain to my kids, you can't just find it and instantly buy it or something. Mm-hmm. And I think they did one later. Yeah, I mean, that was that was great. I mean, it was great that they gave it another a shot, which I'm not sure in the Netflix era you you would have. I mean, if you have like a failure, that's it. Well, sometimes it's worth picking out, isn't it? And you know, something can turn out to be a real gem. Yeah. Well, that first season is almost a different show, really. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it is basically, isn't it? Completely. Well, Ed, we're fast running out of time, uh, but we do have a final question that we uh, ask all our guests, and uh, that's we'd like to know what you're reading right now. Well, I, I'm, I have actually have a terrible habit of reading, like, several books at the same time. I don't know if other people do that. Everyone I always like, go back. What? It's the same thing, Ed. You're not alone. Yes, yeah. Most of our guests say, I've got 10 books on the go, so you're, you're in good company. Yeah, I'm, I'm not- I'm about the same, and some I just think I can't. Well, I mentioned Richard Hannay's book. I mean, that's that's you know that's work reading because I'm going to write something about it. It's interesting, and that's about the origins work. I've also been reading um, uh, over holiday a book on the conquistadores. The I can't remember the name of the authors. Oh, actually, it's actually underneath my laptop. That's where it is. <laughs> Fernando Cervantes. Really interesting. I didn't really know anything about Latin America. I mean, I, I'm my area of it, but it's just an amazing story of this absolute mind blowing clash of cultures. And these kind of insanely brave Spanish sailors and explorers who just turned you know, turned up in, in these jungles and often went missing and came back looking kind of bedraggled and, and insane. And then they went to this incredible city, which you know must have been as big as anything you saw. And they were literally like priests covered in blood, like cutting out people's hearts and like like hundreds of hearts in these in you know, this kind of human sacrifice. It's just like Apocalypto. It's like that film seems to capture it so well. It's such a great film. And, uh, yeah, that was really fun reading. That situation sounds terrible, and you, but I, I think, you know, what's way worse is when people, like, misgender other people on that. That's way worse. That's literally shaking. <laughs> literally shaking. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, well, uh, you know, just, just a final word, Ed, on we've spoken about a lot of different cool stuff today and because I really see your, your writing is, is quite unique in that, you know, you do – uh, bring humor into your work, and I know you you sell us this uh, this idea that um, of pessimism, uh, you know, uh, being on the wrong side of history and whatnot. But I think that's just a cover. I think it's a filthy cover for your romantic heart, and I think you want us to laugh again and to love again and to be doing it all. What do you think? What do you think of my theory? Interesting theory, Doctor Freud. I will. Um, I think about it. <laughs> um, yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I am, I am a romantic, and I, I um, yes, yeah, so I do have this pessimistic side, but yeah, I mean, I obviously, I think you know, without humor, without laughing at things, it, life would be unbearable, and we'd also, 
and also even though things are terrible and i always think oh the other side's all terrible i just i always worry so if i lost lost my humor and just become like this kind of boring ideological obsessive that would just be awful yeah you've got to laugh about things and um i don't know that just makes us human right well i'll just i I, i'll give you some uh personal uh info i worked at a place recently and you know one at least one of them's going to listen to this maybe and report back who knows but uh they are all uh like ideologues and they don't laugh and there was no talk of it was just it was it was i had an existential crisis like it was really no bad it was really tough yeah that'd be awful i mean that would actually be awful wouldn't it yeah so i think um you know uh i i i i'm i i hold out hope that the laughter will will return soon that's all that's all hope for that i mean obviously mr pessimist i probably think it won't but you know good luck anyway <laughs> well we encourage everybody to uh check out your Substack, which is uh, on the wrong side of history thank you so much and how can they find you on, online eddie on twitter uh yeah i'm on twitter just ed west very easy to find um which some uh, complete stranger called Ed West gave to me years ago, which is very nice. An American just said, you know, I only have 200 followers, you can have mine. Miles, I had some, you know, obscure, long-winded one before. So yeah, Ed West on Twitter, and then you should be able to find some subset there. Thanks so much, Ed. It's been a pleasure. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.